Welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Thomas Chermak. Thomas is founder and principal at Chermak Scenarios, which offers customized scenario planning and consulting. He develops systems to provoke new insights and connect decision makers' mental models to complex and uncertain environments. Thomas is also a researcher focused on generating new knowledge about the effects and outcomes of scenario planning. He teaches courses in scenario planning and organizational change at Colorado State University, where he also serves as the director of the Scenario Planning Institute. Welcome to FuturePod, Thomas. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Peter. Thank you for having me and I'm uh, excited for the conversation. Great. Now, I've been looking forward to this chat for a while. So first question on FuturePod, Thomas, is the story question. So what is the Thomas Chermak story? How did you end up a member of the Future and Foresight community? Well, I guess I'm not sure that I am a member (laughs) of that community, but I would say I can think back to being an undergraduate student, taking a strategic planning course at the business school, and one night, three hours of that course was illuminating the concept of scenario planning. And I was hooked immediately. Yeah. And I decided really essentially that night that this is what I wanted to make my career all about. And I was fascinated by the blend of scenarios require a degree of analytic thinking and also creative thinking. And the blend of the two was something that I I had not come across before. And I decided there and then and that night that this is what I wanted to carve out my career. And at the time, searching the academic literature, there was not much in terms of empirical research on scenarios specifically. I mean, there had been a bit about strategic planning, but there wasn't much specific to scenarios. And I thought to myself that I saw an opportunity to blend the academic and the practical aspects of scenario planning, and I could carve out a career in terms of trying to generate empirical research about what does this process do? What does this activity deliver? And uh, yeah, I mean, that's 20 years ago. (laughs) It's funny you say that, Thomas, because scenarios, when you look at the journals, and whether it's futures and foresight, and obviously tech forecasting, when scenarios are there, they're, they're there in an odd way. People do write about them a lot, but I get the impression for you, when you say that they're not actually studied, whether it's scientifically or empirically, do you want to explain a bit more? Absolutely. I, I think a lot of my work has been quite honestly misunderstood because I think of scenario planning as a change intervention. It, it, it's no different from a training program or a leadership development program. These things are all very socially constructed and they're very soft in terms of 
how you're trying to give people an experience that helps them grow and learn. However, there are rooms full of research on training and development programs. There are rooms full of research on leadership training programs. So what I have hopefully tried to do is to say, yes, scenario planning is very, very socially constructed, and it depends on the people who are involved and what the experience is and how the facilitator works through uh, some kind of process. But I, I do think there are measures that can be taken, you know, as pre-test, post-test. And we can see improvements in employee engagement. We can see improvements in job satisfaction. We can see improvements in organizational climate as perceived by the people who participate. So I think my work has been misunderstood I don't think scenarios are a tool to predict the future at all. It, it is an entirely socially constructed process. What I've tried to do is to say, this is a change management intervention. And I think there are benefits that we can measure. There are outcomes that we can isolate, but that they don't have to do with predicting the future. Yeah. If Thomas Chermak has a motivation for how scenarios appealed to him on that famous undergraduate session, why this interest? Why this attraction? Thank you for that question. I'm a, a definite believer in continuous improvement. So I think we can always do things better and we can care more about the people we work with, and how our workplaces function. So I, I immediately saw scenarios as a way to do that. There's a preface by Jed Davis, a former Shell alumni in, I think it's Rafael Ramirez's edited book, The Turbulence of the Future. He said in his editorial that uncertainty is not new. It's always been there. And he went back, you know, hundreds of years to show these examples. But I think it's true that it feels, it feels more prevalent right now. That the world is changing faster and faster. Although if we look back historically, it may not be the case. However, given that perception that the world is changing faster and faster, one of the big lessons from Pierre Vac in doing a biography on him was just that making uncertainty a part of the planning process is what was novel about scenarios in the early days. And I would argue that it continues to be that way. I, I continuously show this chart with clients and, and students that strategic planning tends to say, here's where we are, here's where we want to be, and we just have to figure out the steps. But that is entirely divorced from how the external environment can change. So I think making uncertainty a part of the planning process and trying to understand how could the world change in ways that maybe we're not even thinking about is what is the most significant factor with scenarios and, and other kinds of future thinking. Building uncertainty into 
how we plan and think about the future, whether a corporation, a nation, a state, uh, a country, or, or whatever it might be. Does working with uncertainty with people that we're going to work with improve us and our ability to work together because we start to practice the way the world's actually going to be, the way it's going to be when we walk out of the scenario workshop and we work back into the, the physical work, you know, the physical workplace. But uncertainty is going to re-enter. I'm not going to agree with you. We're going to see different ways of doing things. Is it a place of rehearsal and safety and training wheels and, and play that is helpful when we go back into the real world? I think it, it is a rehearsal, and this is why the selection of who participates is so important, mm. because they are your real-world colleagues. And I think scenario planning and that ex- those exercises provide a basis on which to say, when we disagree, once the scenario or futures effort is essentially for lack of a better word, completed, although I don't think it's ever really complete. It gives you a basis on which to relate to people having had that similar experience before. So I think it's critically important. And just to touch on one other aspect of this, Pierre Vac at Shell was very adamant about what he called remarkable people. And Mm. for him, that meant It was nothing really remarkable about the people themselves, but people who were outside of Shell Oil. He invited Peter Gabriel, the musician, Mm. to come to Shell Oil. He's a rock star. He didn't know anything about oil, but to provide an outsider perspective. So there is an aspect of, I would say, scenarios, but any futures effort that could benefit from bringing in outside thinkers because the point of what you're trying to do is break the group think so many executives and vice presidents and svps and whatever they're trained very 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 similarly uh, degrees maybe from the same mba programs etc and having different voices involved in the scenario process really opens up the thinking so to come back to your question i think if it's well facilitated and well-delivered, I think the scenario and futures exercises can really give a platform for people to have disagreements beyond those exercises and have a common understanding on which to build. Did you have experience of other organizations? Is it some of those experiences of organizations and how the difficulty of setting strategy and working in a strategic space with other high-minded, intelligent people. Did you have those experiences without necessarily knowing about scenarios? Well, before I learned about scenarios, I was really working in training and development. My mentor, Richard Swanson, uh, was a professor at the University of Minnesota, and he had contracts with companies like 3M and General Mills in the city there. And I was really like a stand-up trainer. Like I would just go and deliver these kinds of things. And interestingly, once I found scenarios, I I remember begging companies to let me kind of try this out. Because at the time, there wasn't a lot of guidance on 
precisely how to do it. And I can recall when I wrote the, f- the first book, Scenario Planning in Organizations, I had charts uh, and images in the book that describe ranking on impact and on uncertainty. And the reviewer said, do we really have to have this in the book? And I said, absolutely, because I didn't know how to do it. So yeah, I think in hindsight, it was a lot of work for me to get to where I feel somewhat, (laughs) maybe minimally confident (laughs) about what I can deliver. But I know that it does have an impact and it does help. Question two, Thomas, is the guest talking about a framework, a philosophy for how they do their work? And for you, it's scenarios. You've written books about it. What is your belief and approach to what this does? Thank you for that. So 100% of the work that I do in the consulting fashion is customized. So I have worked on scenarios that took 12 months to produce. And at the extreme other end, I ran a workshop on Tuesday, Wednesday, we wrote the scenarios. And on Thursday, we delivered them and had a strategy generation activity. So it can run the whole range. Shell Oil is still the main organization that has done scenarios for 60 years. And their scenarios are 30, 40, 50 years out. My clients can't think that far ahead. And I tend to work much more closely to the corporate strategy domain. So I find that five to 10 years is is about as much tolerance as people can have in terms of radically rethinking what kind of technology or smartphones we might be holding or not holding at all, and what that might evolve to. So my philosophy is generally a bit shorter term. I don't generally work on things like climate change scenarios. My clients are not in in that realm. I don't work generally for governments or large entities. My work is mostly focused on organizations and corporations. So that bounds me a little bit in terms of how that works. So I always try to ask what's reasonable. And I think one of the problems with scenarios is that there's a perception that it takes a lot of time and a lot of money. And I would say, I don't think that's true at all. And I would refer to Peter Schwartz, the author of The Art of the Long View and and Pierre Vac's successor at Shell, any scenario planning is better than none. The whole point of these kinds of exercises is to check your thinking and to check your assumptions. Do you assume that tomorrow is going to be the same as today? And I think that assumption is faulty. So Peter Schwartz would do scenarios on a napkin in an airport, and I would do the same. I think any instigation or inspiration to to really just think about what we're not thinking about is ultimately the point. 
And a lot of people would criticize me and have criticized me. I'm generally in the intuitive logics school of scenarios. And there's a whole other host of ways of futuring in futures and foresight science. And we don't even have a real label for the overarching field, but there's backcasting, there's forecasting, there's all these different methods. And I have chosen to specialize in a specific area. So what I hope that I bring to the table is a completely customized experience. And the latest book I've written is intended to to target that. I wonder, Thomas, by tightly banding yourself to, if I call it the commercial business sector of scenario and not necessarily working in places like government with longer term, more abstract, does that actually simplify the process for you? Does it actually make it easier to do scenarios when you do keep it short and you do keep it you know, quite, quite concrete as a change process? I would immediately say there's nothing easy about doing scenarios. (laughs) And and to do them, as I described this project last week, running a workshop to get the information we need and then spending one day writing scenarios, like there's no question the scenarios could be better or more in-depth or more detailed or more comprehensive if we had three, six, eight months to work on them. But in the last 15 years, the pressure that I have experienced in terms of, I mean, I've had executives say like, what's the fastest, most efficient way you can deliver this? Like they they don't want to wait three, four, six, eight months. And, And if you compare it to strategic planning, most organizations typically have a strategic planning retreat once a year, and it maybe is a one or two day activity. So I think it's important for scenarios to evolve toward that direction. Decision makers, leaders don't have six months to wait. And unfortunately, especially in the US, and I've experienced this differently outside the US, but especially in the US, there is a pressure for efficiency and economy of time And especially if you're thinking about this project last week, it was 30 people from around the U.S. and outside the U.S., the cost to bring people together and scheduling. So there needs to be, in my view, a way to deliver the value of scenarios and futures thinking efficiently, given the world that we live in and how you can't bring that group of 30 people together repeatedly over three, four months. It's just impossible given the the scheduling. I was a somewhat academic, somewhat consultant when I was practicing, Thomas. And the more I did scenarios and the more I engaged with scenarios, I wondered more and more about how we spent the time of the executives that we asked. And I increasingly felt that are we better off using executives' time to build scenarios or are we better off using executives' time to use scenarios? Because mm. to me, 
I had too many experiences, Thomas, where I put all the time and effort into the building and they almost had almost exhausted their budget, their, their kind of intellectual budget, to suddenly now reinvest in an engagement of how to use it. So where do you sit on this notion that the best use of organisation in terms of outcome is to be in using scenarios rather than necessarily being deeply involved in the crafting of scenarios? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked that question because <laughs> that's the entire premise of... Uh of my new book, which is titled Using Scenarios. So I think if you look back historically, the the most important thing I learned from writing a biography of Pierre Vac at Shell was the leadership would tell him, here's a big problem, a big uncertainty, go and study it. And he and his scenario team would go away and they would work on their uh, process and do whatever they did. And then they would come back to the managing directors and present the scenarios. So they did not use executive time to build scenarios yeah. at all. None. And I think that's just as effective today. I don't think executive time spent building scenarios is really the best use. Now, I would back up and say, Again, referring to the project just last week, it was the entire leadership team, and we asked them for one day. And I think that's a reasonable ask of executive VP, SVP leadership team, one day. And we got everything we needed to write the scenarios and then went back to them two days later and said, here are our alternative futures. So I think... It's such a balance about what the organization wants, what time they have. But I would generally agree with you that using executive time to build scenarios is probably not the, the right way to go. However, one of the other things that comes out of Shell is interviews. You can learn a lot by interviewing five, six, seven people on a leadership team for 30 minutes a piece, and that gives you a whole lot of input into writing and building scenarios and giving you a perspective on what people are thinking about the future. So that there's a lot of different ways to address the issue that you're raising, and there's not one answer. I think it, it just depends on some leadership teams really want to have a heavy hand in building scenarios. Some would care less, and they just want to be sort of slapped over the top of the head with an interesting future that sort of shocks them. So it's all over the place, but I generally I would agree with you that executive time is not best spent in the scenario building phase, although the input that you can get in different ways is critically important. There clearly is tremendous learning experiences from working through scenarios as a group. What are the kind of things that people can learn working together on a set of scenarios for a period of time? I can't tell you the number of times that I have uh, facilitated a group working on scenarios when someone has said, I, I had no idea we were even doing that in our company. So there's a, there's a knowledge sharing 
that's really intangible and it's really hard to quantify, even though I've tried, I don't know that I've done that well, but the knowledge sharing across the organization has been a recurring theme in, I would say, almost every single project that I work on. You have people from different divisions. People talk about silos in, in organizations and how difficult that is to break down. And granted, the way that I run scenarios is usually 20 to 30 people. So there's no way to get the entire organization uh, involved in this kind of uh, conversation and process. But even at the silo level, somebody from marketing uh, learning about customer service or whatever these different branches might be, there's no question in my mind that the experience of what I have had over the last 20 years with clients from all different industries, like it starts to break down because people start to understand these different roles and, and how they contribute. The hardest part, and if I could solve this, it'd be, it would be <laughs> the legacy of my career. The hardest part is how do you sustain that? Yeah. Like it's, 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 it's gratifying and it's, I would say, relatively easy with this kind of process when you have those 20 or 30 people in the room. But when, when the work is, you know, essentially, it's never done, as I mentioned before, but, but when the workshops are over, people go back to their roles and how to sustain that cross-cutting thinking across the organization is quite honestly... In my experience, I haven't solved it yet, and I would like to, but I don't know that I would. We're talking about organizational learning and organizational dynamics. Yeah, and big time. I think you can't, it'd be completely unfair to say, well, the scenario hasn't taught us how to work effectively as a group across all domains. The answer is that was never the purpose of the scenario. The one thing I would say that I undoubtedly recommend to every single client is part of the scenario process. I always deliver a set of what we call signals, and I'm sure you're familiar with signals, but these are the events required for a given scenario to actually unfold in reality. And the one resounding recommendation is review the signals, whether you have a monthly management team meeting or however often it happens. But if you're monitoring the signals, you're paying attention to how the external environment is changing. And that alone is way beyond what strategic planning generally can offer in terms of its historical process. So these signals of how the world is changing, are they're incredibly critical. And I've found that tends to help keep these silos together, at least in some, in some sense. I think what happens when you ask people to revisit the signals, Thomas, people go back to the workshop. They just for a moment remember how they thought, how they were thinking, how they regarded the other person. It's not the, it's not the complete workshop experience, but they remember. I was taught by someone who didn't do anything about scenarios, but she always taught me is give people enjoyable, creative experiences in the workplace because too many experiences in workshops are not enjoyable or creative. 
And then if people have a powerful, positive experience working together, then if you can remind them of that at some point in the future, they, to some extent, recapture the magic again. Yeah, and there's two mechanisms for that. I work on the two-by-two matrix approach to scenarios. So you have a critical uncertainty on the horizontal and one on the vertical. And it's important, what is the theme and how are they named? And I call that mental Velcro because a, a client I had two years ago, they had an animal theme and they had a gorilla, a cheetah, et cetera, et cetera. And I could go back to that company tomorrow and say, you remember the cheetah scenario? And they would remember it because of exactly what you're saying. And the signals are another way to do that, to connect people back to that experience and sharing the knowledge with their colleagues. But further, the signals, and I could give you examples of this, the way that I do it is we write them as headlines. So whatever news channel you watch, there's the scrolling, <laughs> there's the scrolling yeah. banner across the yeah. bottom. Yeah. And it's like, if I said to you six months ago, Elon Musk buys t uh, Twitter, yeah. you would not have believed me. Yeah. But if we did scenarios six months ago, and that was a headline, as soon as you saw that, you would see maybe the world is trending towards one of these scenarios more than the other. So those are really powerful devices that are not super sophisticated and they're creative in nature and, and they really make scenarios useful and attached to how people think about the future. Thanks, Thomas. Third question, the emerging futures around Thomas Chermak, not as a scenario expert, just the human being that you are, where is your attention, your research, your own personal thinking going around the emerging futures around you and what are they and why? Wow. Okay. Well, I'm afraid this might be very disappointing to your listeners. I'm actually quite an introverted person. I love running workshops and I can be highly extroverted. But when I come home, I really like quiet and I find the news really hard to watch these days. And I have to limit how much I pay attention to it. I don't feel inspired by the world's leadership and it's easy to feel sad about all the things that are happening and, and why. So I do, I have a heavy heart about, about what's happening in the world and the conflicts <laughs> and the prospects of potential nuclear war. I mean, like these are not, these are not um, friendly things. So I wouldn't say I ignore them, but I have to limit how much attention. My local environment where I live is, is very beautiful and I have spent a lot of time in Japan and I have studied Japanese tea ceremony for 15 years. And so I've, I meditate every single day and I find those things keep me optimistic and positive and just hopeful about the world. And in terms of what's next, there's so much to do. I get questions frequently from 
PhD students and corporate leaders, like, how can I learn about scenario planning? And I'm really sad to say we don't have a professional association. We don't have a space where, I mean, Global Business Network, you know, all Shell alumni and my colleague, Rafael Ramirez and Angela Wilkinson at University of Oxford, they run the Oxford Scenarios Program as a one-week training course. But outside of that, I don't know of anywhere. University of Houston has their futures program at a master's degree level. And I think probably scenarios are like my undergraduate experience where it's covered. But I wish there was a formal way and process for how do you teach people this? Right now, the only way that I teach people is I have a semester-long PhD course in our doctoral program here at Colorado State. But it's three months, and and you're barely getting to scratch the surface of this this whole discipline of futures and scenarios. So I, I hope long term, and I don't know how to do it, but I certainly hope to be a part of creating some kind of futures training program to teach people how to do this, because it's very complicated and it's difficult. But I, I don't know where people would go if they wanted to learn about it. I think, Thomas, the world of learning for us is going through fundamental change through digital and technology. It's part of the reason why I decided to get into podcasting, which is a very old technology. Digital, video, audio, I think offer us alternatives for how we might consider learning take place. What you're talking about is a community of practice. Absolutely. How How do you build a community of practice around scenarios? Now, you can build a community of practice by having a shared experience of going to Houston or going to Oxford. Sure. But are there other ways sure. to build community of practice that don't that don't require a person who can't afford to, who hasn't got the means to? Could you build a community of practice in a digital platform using Discord, YouTube, podcasts, streaming, and become a community that teaches one another? Uh, you know, it's fascinating that you say that because I was hit by the pandemic just like everyone else, and I had to figure out how to do scenario planning online. And I had a grant project and we did scenario planning for five states in the U.S. in their fish and wildlife departments. The dynamics were around people aren't hunting and fishing anymore. So the sales of licenses are decreasing rapidly. And that's a huge revenue for states. And what do they do? And anyway, I, I I had to figure out a way to do this online and I had a Miro, this online whiteboarding sticky note technology and using Mentimeter. And we got through it and we did it the best I think we could, but the engagement was just not, not comparable to being face-to-face. That experience was really difficult and I don't know how to overcome that. I really struggled with doing it that way, and we could do it, but I would say it, it just doesn't compare to having people together. So I'm open to that, but I am skeptical that technology is going to be able to replace what it feels like to be in a room 
and what happens at the breaks and we're getting coffee and we're having a, a chit chat about, you know, things maybe totally irrelevant to the scenario project, but those are important interactions. I don't think technology ever replaces the physical experience. The thing that I'm at my age becoming increasingly aware, and just recently I did some podcasts with Peter Bishops where they did the young foresight practitioners. And I spoke to a young girl Mm. in Pakistan who's doing STEM education online and another young woman from Brazil doing online debates. Mm -hmm. There's a whole generation coming through that don't think the way we think. (laughs) Um, Completely. And I wish I could think the way they think. (laughs) Or maybe they actually become the people that lead us to other ways of doing this. That It's not about us getting them teaching us. It's about you tell me how you can learn this way. And it might be that we start to support the way that the next generations think they can learn this. Um, Because it may become more disseminated. And totally. uh, Scenarios are all about mental models. And I'll be the first to admit that I have gaps. I have fixedness in my mental model. And uh, yeah, wouldn't it be fascinating to have your mind be able to think in in the way that a 10-year-old is thinking these days? It's just radically different. I mean, I have all the baggage of how I was raised and where I grew up and all that stuff. And and so, so you know, maybe the greatest skill going forward would be unlearning mm-hmm. the ability the ability to unlearn yeah. is something that is not given a, a whole lot of attention but i think it's incredibly important that might be in your next book thomas the communication question how do you explain what chermak does to someone who doesn't understand what it is that Thomas Chermak does? At the start, I would simply say, I'm just a guy living in Fort Collins, Colorado, and enjoying life. So there's not much more to it than that. I wake up every morning with a smile on my face, grateful to to be alive. And I have a practice. I mentioned my affinity for Japan and Japanese culture earlier, but I have a practice every morning. I write down five things that I'm grateful for. And I have found that a life involving meditation and thinking about gratitude has served me very well. Some people go to church, some people become carpenters, some people have various things that fill them. And these are very simple, basic things that that fill me. I've always tried to read as much as I can about Buddhism. I, I have an affinity for that approach to thinking about the world. And I'm so far away from you know, having anything profound to say about Buddhism. <laughs> but it's definitely something that I, I try. So what would I say to someone? So a lot about Buddhism is respecting the present moment. All we have is right now, this very moment. And it's useless to think about the past. And it's really useless to think about the future, which is a dichotomy for me because my my whole career is in the future. So I somehow 
at least for now, reconcile it in my mind in terms of, I do believe it's true that all we have is right now in this present moment. And I do believe it's true that the decisions that we make now inevitably shape what options are available to us tomorrow. So to me, the present and the future are inextricably linked. You can't avoid the connection between those two in my head. So maybe that goes more to your philosophy question. (laughs) Well, again, I uh, mean... I think you describe karma, that from right mind come come right actions, from wrong mind come wrong actions, and from wrong actions you create not preferred futures. I, I, yeah, I think those are all links. And I also really struggle to accept, because I've spent a bit of time in Japan and I have watched, in, in some ways, a monk's, life seems like a cop-out to me. You go away from the world. You don't have children. You don't have relationships. You clean the floors. You meditate. And I've lived in temples for periods of time, and I've seen how that works. It almost in some ways seems like an escape. Like On the other hand, isn't it more learning focused or developmental to experience life, to experience heartbreak, to experience what it's like to raise a child and and all these things. So I have my own battles with these things, but I, I do. I think it is karma. I think how you choose to be today directly influences who you're going to be tomorrow. And I would say the same is true for a company, for a government, for country for an organization these are things that i i wonder about that i think about that i struggle with i think we all struggle with them thomas so so thomas we're at the end of the interview you've just written a new book i shouldn't say just it's been there for a little while but you'll maybe just talk to the listeners about your book and what you are hoping from it and then what's next for thomas chermack Well, thank you. So in February, the book came out, it's titled Using Scenarios. I'm a bit shy in terms of marketing. It's not my strong suit. And so I don't mean this to ever sound like a sales pitch. However, I do think this book is important. And here is the reason why. This new book is entirely focused on using scenarios. And I have observed over my career that many scenario planners feel like their job is to deliver a set of scenarios. Mm. So whatever process you use, the product, in essence, is a set of three or four or five scenarios. And in this book, I, I do cover the history of strategic planning and why and how it has seemingly failed in a lot of ways because the same thing has happened. Consulting firms do an analysis and deliver a strategic plan. But how do you use it? How do you implement it has always been the question. And I fear that scenario planning is potentially set up for the same kind of failure. So this book is intended and I draft out 
there's seven different chapters on seven different ways that you could use scenarios beyond once you have them. And I, I wanted to be really careful in this book that um, the, the scenario planning field has had these debates over the years of what's the right way to create scenarios. And I'm just throwing that out in the trash. There's no right way. It just doesn't matter. The point of this book is you have scenarios. It does not matter how you achieve them or how you develop them. It's just, it just doesn't matter. What do you do with them from this point forward? And that's really what I'm, what I'm trying to get to. And ultimately, one of the last chapters in the book is about how to get scenarios a part of organizational culture. And I referred to this earlier in our interview. I really think scenarios should be an ongoing activity. It should be at least annual. If we're going to do strategic planning every year, we should do scenarios, right? Right. So ultimately, if it was a standard practice in every company across the world that scenarios were part of the planning process, then I would feel like mission, <laughs> mission accomplished, you know, um, but maybe that's too optimistic, but that's you, ultimately where I'd like to go. You, is the point that you have to have in mind the use to which you are going to put the scenario before you start to build the scenario? That's a really fascinating question, and I can only answer it. I don't have any data or research evidence for this. Although I would say it's really shocking how many, even of my own clients, and I'm guessing probably many others out there, there isn't a clearly articulated purpose from the beginning. So there's an idea like, well, we need to think differently, or this sounds exciting. This sounds okay. different to what we do. So let's do this. And what I'm saying in this book also is there's also a natural point once you have developed scenarios to stop and say, okay, now what are we going to do with these? What, how are we going to use them? So I don't, in my own experience, like it's, it's uncommon that it's clearly articulated from the beginning and what I'm trying to say, too, is like, here's a natural pause point to say, okay, okay, we've done this exercise, however it was done, and we have these scenarios. Now, what is the most strategic way to use them or how, how can we use them to help us with whatever it is that we, we might be struggling with, whether it's yeah. acquiring a firm? And I try to also say clearly, um, it's perfectly okay to develop scenarios just to wonder about the future. But, but let's be honest about that. We're just trying to think differently. Like that's a whole different category than we have really important decisions to make and we don't know what the right decision is, you know, to acquire a firm for $20 billion. Like, is that a, is that a good <laughs> decision? And pushing that through scenarios would tell you something about that. It's just important at some point to be clear. Are we just trying to think differently or, or is there a specific outcome in mind? Yeah. Again, it's not just an afterthought. You don't think of this 
in the last half an hour of the workshop when people are suddenly wrapping up and getting ready to catch their planes, you actually, as the facilitator, you would become conscious of this certainly at a point where at what point do we start at least raising the question of how is this useful? How, how are we going to use this? What's going to be the point of this? Um, yeah, exactly. And often it, it is a follow-on activity. I've had so many clients say, what a wonderful activity. We, we're thinking in different ways. How can we move this forward? And so this book is like, well, here are different ways, depending on what it is on the top of your minds as a leadership team or executive team or whatever it might be. So I, I do think it, it doesn't need to be articulated at the very beginning before you even build scenarios. I think there are natural points where you can you can go back and ask that question about how can we use these to our best advantage. Well, congratulations on the book. And thank you, Thomas, for agreeing to have this chat and spending some time with the FuturePod community. It's been a pleasure to, to meet you. Well, likewise. And like I said, I really appreciated your questions. Very thought-provoking. Got into more personal stuff than most interviews that that I've done. And uh, I just appreciated meeting you and having the conversation as well. So thank you. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.